The year 1953, a plane touches down at Smithy's Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. G'day, g'day, this is Sheldon the Kangaroo Kid and you're listening to the All Australian Music Stories. Today's episode is on a true pioneer of Australian rock and roll, John Charter. John was there at the very beginning as a member of Australia's first rock and roll band, Alan Dale and the House Rockers. Yep, you heard right, the very first rock and roll band ever formed in Australia. From there, he helped form Johnny Rebony's Rebels, a band that would go on to carve out its own place in Aussie rock history. John has also shared the stage with such legendary acts as the Everly Brothers. Alongside another great of Australian music, Digger Avell, John toured Vietnam as well as Southeast Asia and they also spent another three year stint performing together in the USA. Back in Australia during the 80s, John became a member of the legendary group The Deltones. If that's not enough of a claim to fame, John also spent time as the musical director of the iconic television show Bandstand. I hope you enjoy listening to the career of John Charter. Well, I saw a little girl... I'm walking down the street In you and five other musicians formed a band and named yourselves Alan Dale and the House Rockers. History credits you guys for being the first rock and roll band to form in Australia. So you've been there from the very start, John. That's quite a claim to fame. Yeah, good day, Sheldon. How you doing, mate? And that's right, I was uh, 1956. I was um, just approached by a guy called Alan Dale who, who knew of me because I used to learn piano from his next door neighbour. And uh, he was looking for a piano player to join his band. He already had a saxophone and bass player and a guitar player. No, he didn't have a guitar, so I apologize there. He had a, a bass player and a drummer. 
and he asked me would I like to audition for the House Rockers. That at that time wasn't wasn't named the House Rockers. They didn't have a name, but um, soon became a name. And uh, I went over to his house with all the guys who were there, and I played the piano. They all sang and played, and I got the job. That was fifty six. That's a great name, the House Rockers. Yeah, it's not a great name, House Rockers. Yeah. So fifty six. It was uh, about late fifty six. We did the auditions, and we started practicing. And in uh, January the seventeenth, nineteen fifty seven. We opened our first dance at the Maroubra Memorial Hall in Anzac Parade, Maroubra. And uh, we got our girlfriends and, and other people to help and get on. They got on the door and took the money as the kids came in. And uh, for about three or four weeks, it was quite successful. So um, eventually, after that short time, the council um, got complaints from the church across the road. <laughs> We were all evil people and uh, disrupting the, the, the way of life, so they, they threw us out. Um, it was only another week before we got to Botany Town Hall, so we moved across to Botany Town Hall and uh, we stayed there a good uh, three months, actually. So it was uh, on and on. That was in 57, of course. Um, then it, uh, it just sort of blossomed, it ballooned into four or five nights a week doing all gigs. So we did, um, uh, where did we go? Manly, Manly Vale. We are over there for a little while, then... Um, Oh, I can't think of the other one. Uh, Botany Town Hall, I said yes. Uh, the, the Police Boys Club at Redfern, the Police Boys Club at uh, Daceyville, and uh, it just went on and on. And then we picked up this fantastic one at Mawson's on Newtown Bridge. Yeah, we'll get to Mawson's a okay, bit later. That's we'll so, yeah. On that one. yeah. Okay, you're <laughs> Definitely. Um, so you were the guys corrupting the youth of the day by uh, by bringing this devil's music into into society and <laughs> yeah, right. and challenging the conventions of the standard of the day. The community leaders and parents alike were determined to stop rock and roll. And and the way they seen it, you guys were ending civilization as we knew it. You and your band are at the forefront of this rage. It doesn't get more rock and roll than that, John. That's pretty right, isn't it, Sheldon? Uh, we were just doing what we uh, we actually all saw the the movie, the Blackboard Jungle. Of course, that was a bit of a bit of a, a, a movie that uh, upset the uh, the realms of society. Uh, all those sort of kids uh, doing what they do, and uh, Rock Around the Clock was the um, the main song that, that all picked our ears up, and uh, we just went with it. And we just, all, all over Sydney, these rock and roll bands were were springing up. So we were the first. We sort of got there first, for whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> well, it gives you that notoriety, that's for sure. Yeah, to you and me, it does. That's right. <laughs> So kids all over Australia are now starting to pray at the altar of rock and roll, particularly enraging the church leaders and lawmakers of the day. The more pressure they tried to apply to you guys, the uh, I'm sure the more determined you were to forge ahead. This is true, yeah. Um, we didn't sort of understand in those days the, uh, the the push of society that was against rock and roll. We were just happy to go along and do what we do because we're so in, involved in it and, and love the music and we saw the kids loved it too. We just, just kept going. And it didn't peter out for us until um, I, well, it did peter out for us um, eventually. But in the meantime, I had uh, met up with a guy called Johnny Reb, who was um, a budding sort of soloist. And uh, he approached me and he actually, what's that word? He, um, he, uh, he stole me from Alan Dale and the House Rockers. He made me a, an offer I couldn't refuse to be the uh, musical director and writer of all the charts and enjoy the band and, and to form the band as well. So... That's another thing. That was um, 1958, because 1957. Oh, in the meantime, before all that happened, after I'd finished with done the, the first year with Alan Dale, I formed my own band called the Johnny Charter Group. That was back in uh, 1958. Yeah, 58, early 58. And we got a gig at the at the Rockdale Hotel, at the Rockdale, Rockdale Grand Hotel. It was called actually. 
And uh, I had the um, a drummer that I'd known for a while called Johnny Burns, who unfortunately we just lost about two months back. And another a very famous musician now in the jazz scene is a guy called Bob Bertels. He was my saxophone player. And the three of us, we formed a band called the Johnny Charter Group, as I said. Even the, the drummer put my name on the front of his bass drum. So every, every time we kicked the bass drum, he'd be kicking me in the head. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that lasted about six months. Uh, there were some guys like um, Booker Highland and, and George Caron who were famous after that. Uh, they came along, used to sit in with us and sing with us. And We didn't have a singer. I became the singer, pretty rough in those days. But, um, and we just played rock and roll to the, to the, to the punters in the, in, the, in the hotel. It was great news. Six nights a week. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Can't ask for more than that. That's fantastic, yeah. So just sliding back just a little bit back to the Allendale days, by coincidence, Allendale worked in the same building as Johnny O'Keefe and they were mates. The other big bands at the time were JOK and the DJs and Cold Joy and the Joy Boys. Was there much rivalry between the bands at the stage? No, not at all. There was no rival between, um, as far as we know, we were sort of the musos in the band and Allendale was the, the leader and the he was talking to people. Um, he never made any comments about that. We were just going, doing our thing, going around uh, Sydney, doing all rock and roll dances. That one I couldn't think of before was called Alexandria Town Hall. That was one of the big ones. We used to, that was a Thursday night. We used to pack them in there. And that was your own promotion? You put those, That's those our own yep. promotion, yeah. We went around the telegraph poles and stuck little, what do you call it, posters on the poles and all that stuff because there's no television to advertise on. The radio didn't want to know about us in those days. We were sort of... One of the, the roughest gigs in town was Mawson's at Newtown. The, the bouncers were boxers at Irma McQuillan's gym and they tried to uh, rule with an iron fist. And But it was a uh, the capacity crowd would often explode like a powder keg. Did you guys feel safe up on stage? Well, that uh, that little sentence you said, I said wasn't exactly right. We didn't have any trouble at all. And we were there a good uh, six, seven, eight months. Um, and there was no troubles, although we had the, you know, the, the boxers there as, as um, what do you call it, security. But there was no problem. Until um, we actually, or not I, I wasn't involved in that, but Alan Dale was. He he sold the venue to Johnny O'Keefe, and O'Keefe didn't have a Sunday night job, so he he bought it off Alan. I don't know what he paid; it wasn't none of my business because Alan did the business. And uh, I think the first night they opened, apparently there was a um, a wedding downstairs, and. Uh, all upstairs with the rock and roll dance that O'Keefe was uh, belting out. And there was an altercation between some of the guys in the wedding and some of the guys upstairs, and all hell broke loose. And I think they lasted two weeks after after him buying the, the gig from us. He only lasted two weeks because, all, as I said, all hell broke loose on that one night. But it wasn't us. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we were, we were, <laughs> not the blame, yes. No, 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 it wasn't us. So do you know if that was the night where they, they came up with the song The Wild One? Because apparently that was, was about a, a wedding and a riot and, a, and it was never confirmed, but yeah, maybe was, you just confirmed the story then. There, there was two guys in the band, one called Johnny Greenan, a saxophone player, and Dave Owens, the other saxophone player. And after the, that, that, that night, I think they had the, the, big, the big fight, the big brawl, they wrote that song Wild One. That's been confirmed by Johnny Greenan. Well, there's a bit of history. Yeah, history. And he's still getting royalties, still today. It's still being, it's being copied by so many people and picked up. I don't know who they all are, but they're out there. Well, one of the main famous ones is Iggy Pop. Oh, Iggy Pop, yeah. He did The last 10 years, he did one, a, a reversion of that with Jet, the Australian uh-huh. band. And yep. it's a song that just keeps giving and giving and no, giving. It's, so, and it's good to, good to hear that he's still getting some it's royalties like for it. Melody. Yeah, exactly. Up, it? <laughs> exactly. In 1957, Bill McColl books the Sydney Town Hall and puts a show on called Rock and Roll Ball. It was a triple headline show, 
Alan Dale and the House Rockers, Johnny O'Keefe and the DJs, and Cold Joy and the Joy Boys. This was the first time all three acts had performed together. What was your recollections of this show? Okay, that was a fantastic start to um, to my rock and roll career. We were the first on, we were the opening act, and we went well, of course, because it was all rock and roll. The place was packed with people, packed with kids. Um, Cold Joy followed us. Um, unfortunately, Cold Joy didn't have a bass player, and we had a we had a bass player called um, Keith Sharrett who pulled the, um, the, the the wood bass, you know, the the acoustic bass. But uh, Cole didn't have a bass player at all. And apparently, Keith, who became the bass player, his brother, was still home making it because in those days we could not buy electric basses in Australia. We had to make our own. All the people who were bass players, you can ask them all, to make all their own basses and to make their own amplifiers because we couldn't buy the Fender amplifiers in Australia at this stage, couldn't buy the Fender guitars. This was 1958. This is early days. We couldn't buy anything like that. I personally was problem- problematic because I couldn't um, find an electric piano. There's no such thing. So I was belting my hands out on a, the old acoustic pianos trying to be heard above the din of the drummer. <laughs> the big offbeat of those days, you know, that's where started rock and roll offbeat. Um, though the band, the, the band was so loud, it wasn't really loud as compared to today, of course, but it was loud for an acoustic piano player to hear himself. So what I used to do, I used to take the front off the piano and the bottom off the piano so the strings I could hear myself playing. So, and then I got some microphones, little plastic microphones, and one of our guitar players in the band was Neville Chamberlain, who used to make amplifiers, made his own. He made me an amplifier. So I became electrified, so that I could I could I could beat them sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it comes to be an player. And that and that's sorry, let me go on with that because that's that's where I met Johnny Reb. Because uh, O'Keefe closed the bill, of course, and the, the kids went crazy over him. He had, he had all the whole two saxes and a bass player, electric bass. And while I was there watching Johnny uh, Johnny O'Keefe work, this guy and his manager called uh, Johnny Reb approached me. His name wasn't Johnny Reb in those days. His name was Donnie Delbridge. And uh, we went outside and had a chat, and he asked me, would I be interested in um, in forming a band for him, finding the musicians, got all the contacts, and um, getting his own rock and roll band because he thought he was a, a would-be star, which he became, of course, in, in those days. So that's when I um, I left Allendale. Um, I formed my own band, Johnny uh, Charter Groups, I said, while I was waiting for uh, Rebby to get his stuff together, get some songs, get some material, rehearse. Like I was fighting the band and getting them all rehearsed into a, into a solid group. So that's, that's what that, that um, rock and roll ball was all about for me. So it was at a very important time in your, not, in uh, your life, obviously. It was, yes. It started it all. So as a, as a country and western singer, John Delbridge, he obviously seen his new rock and roll and thought, yep, this is, this is what he wanted. Well, I had no knowledge of his country uh, western um, roots. I, had no, I didn't know he did all that. All I know is he told me he was a, a rock and roll singer, and I believed him. <laughs> there you go. So our first record was um, we did a, um, a what was it a, uh, a a test record at Two UE in Griff House in Two UE. It was called um, You Are My Special Angel, which was basically terrible. <laughs> it was the worst thing I've heard. We had no idea. It was our first time in in uh, for us to be in a recording studio. The guys in the uh, studio had no idea how to record us. It was just like anyway. It got us a. A, another another one at EMI picked us up. After they heard that, said, "Oh, this band has potential. Let's give them a go." Then we went into EMI, and I um I wrote the charts and all that sort of thing for a band, a song called um, Johnny Be Good. Would you believe that uh, I I featured the piano instead of the guitar? 
No, have to do one those days. <laughs> so, as, as a piano player with the live gigs, um, you must have come across some awful pianos in your time. Well, they were, all were. They all were pretty bad. Um, any good pianos were sort of kept for the good players. Like they kept them in. Even the um, Trocadero, they had a good piano, but it was tuned all the time. That was the only one, but still couldn't hear myself. And as as a player of the, I suppose, of the Jerry Lee Lewis style, you, you took no prisoners of key thumpings. Uh, yourself, um, I'm sure you gave some of these pianos a good work over yourself. All I did was I, I was sort of um, beaten by a guy called Jimmy Taylor. Jim Taylor was a, a real sort of um, rock and roll piano, some ideal of Jerry Lewis's style, and uh, he used to thump the hell out of them. Uh, but I was uh, I was thumping them, but I, I couldn't get enough sound. I couldn't hear myself, so I just played along. Uh, there you go. I didn't I didn't build them out. But I tell you what, the first thing was at Botany Town Hall when we went there. Um, I took the front off the piano, an upright piano, not a grand. No such thing as grand in those days. Oh, there was, but we didn't see them in the halls. It was an upright piano that had a front. We took the front off and the bottom off, so the sound I could hear could come out the front, not out the back. And after six or six or eight weeks we worked there, we we they, we got fired, as Alan Dale tells me that the the um, the cleaner found the piano in disrespect, disrepair. I'd, I'd kill the piano only by taking the front off. That's all I did. I didn't do any damage to it, but he said I was, I was messing with it, so they said, no, we can't have you anymore. You dirty rock and roll. Yeah, see you later. Get out of here. <laughs> so, yeah, you mentioned your first demo done at the 2UE studios. Um, my Special Angel, and on the flip side was uh, Pretty Boy's Bip Bop Bip. Yeah, I haven't heard that. I've, uh, I've, I've heard My Special Angel, which I said, oh, that's the worst thing I've ever heard in my life, so I didn't want to hear it anymore. But bip, bop, bip, I've got no idea. Sing it to me, go on. <laughs> you don't want to hear that. <laughs> Take a listen to the original version of Bip, Bop, Bip by Pretty Boy. Well, bip, bop, bip, bip, bop, rock. Come on, baby, let's watch that clock. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm down, mama going out and dance downtown, oh yeah, 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 oh yeah, oh, oh, oh yeah, come on baby, let's rock, well let's hug a buck, let's applejack, come on honey, let's rock the shack, oh yeah, 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 oh yeah, 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 oh yeah, come on baby, let's rock, So apparently only 20 copies of this album was, or this, this single was pressed. And do you, obviously you don't have a, have a copy of that? No, I never saw it. EMI got a copy, of course, and that's, that's what started that. But I never heard that. I never, uh, let me think. Um, you Are My Special Angel. I did hear that one. Uh, the flip side, I can't, uh, no memory of it at all. And as you said, on the strength of this demo, you uh, guys get a recording contract with EMI, cover uh, uh, Chuck Berry's classic, Johnny Be Good. Since that time, Johnny Be Good has been covered by what would seem like a million different bands and performers over the time. At least you can say Johnny Reb and the Rebels would have been in the first handful of acts to cover that uh-huh, song. That's true. And the B-side was another was a great rockabilly tune called Rebel Rock. Who wrote yeah. that song? Um, I don't know. Um, um, gee, that's a long way back. We're talking about 60 years ago, you know. <laughs> it's a memory. No, I, I know it was a good song, and it, it worked good for us. In fact, I thought it was better than the the other side, Johnny Be Good. 
And I thought a lot of a lot of people have, like yourself, of historians and, and record people have told me that they, it was a, a, a better sound. So with with the Johnny B. Good EMI uh, single, did you sell many copies? Uh, I don't think so. Probably one or two. I think I bought one. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Family and friends. No, I, I wasn't at the front line in those days. I was, I was, I was looking after the band. I was looking after all that sort of thing, all the music, all the all the front line stuff about records and sales and whatever was all taken care of. Johnny Reb's manager called Sid McDonough. so he was in the in the in the in the loop right from the start. So he's probably the only band that uh, had a manager, uh, Sid McDonough. And uh, so, did you did you ever hear Johnny uh, Be Good played on the radio? No, never. So it was, I suppose it was a single that sort of sunk without a trace, but it, it gave you guys the start. Well, it did, didn't it? It, um, it, op- it opened up the doors to Lead On Records with Lee Gordon and Alan. Um, yes, go on, Alan. Alan Hefner. Alan Hefner. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So yeah, your first release and Lead On came in nineteen fifty eight. On the A side was Hey Sheriff.
On the B-side was one of the band's own compositions, a song called Nolene. Nolene. One of these days I'm gonna have your love I'm gonna love you till I die Sit right down with you by my side So baby don't you cry Don't worry about my feeling for you story there. You know Nolan Batley? Yes, yes. Well, Johnny Reb apparently at that time was um, amored by Nolan Batley and I'm sure that um, she had the same reaction. She told me about uh, five years ago I spoke with her and she said she felt something for him too and uh, he wrote a song for her. But I don't think it went further than that. That was was just puppy love. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You are an so you've got a story on Hey Sheriff? Yeah, Hey Sheriff was um was given to us as a country and western record. Um, I can't fit the names now. Somebody and somebody. It'll come to me. Um, and with pretty I think it's sort of Rusty hey, and somebody. I can't think of it. Rusty. And, Rusty and Doug. Rusty and Doug. There we Rusty go. Rusty and Doug was the uh, was the composition of it, and it was it wasn't released in Australia. John Laws had it, and he gave it to someone who gave it to someone who gave it to us, and they gave me the uh, the record and said, "John, go home and make a rock and roll record of this, will you?" So I took it home and um, listened to it and said, "Oh, we can't do it this way. That's no good." We're a rock and roll band, not a country band. Nothing wrong with that, of course, but they want they want it rock and roll. So I found a, a thing in my mind about saxophones. Now this, this might have stemmed from Johnny O'Keefe's double saxophone situation, but I went one step further. I used two baritone saxophones. Now a baritone saxophone is a is half an octave deeper than a tenor saxophone, which is down bow 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 down the bottom. Sounds like peewee, you know, down there. So I used two bass or baritone saxophones and um, made a big sort of a big rock and roll riff out of them and featured the piano on top and uh, guitar. Guitar was a guy, um, a Maori guy called Lenny Hutchison, who in those days was one of the fantastic guitar players around town. So I grabbed him and I wrote it for him and I played the yang 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 gum and the baritone ba da ba da bum sort of thing. So it was all put together and I wrote it all and produced it all. And the funny part about this, um, doing this record, we hadn't done Nolene yet, but we're doing um, Johnny Be Good. And I noticed you know, after a few takes, because the drummer kept messing up halfway through, and I kept doing it a couple of times. There was no overdubs in those days. You had to do it all live with a, with a singer and everybody. So I did it right first time. I noticed in the control room, I looked up and Johnny O'Keefe was in there. Now, what he was doing there, I had no idea. But what uh, happened, he, um, he, he took our saxophone player, our baritone player called Bob Bertels. Okay, so he, he uh, offered Bob Bertels a job with the DJs, and as a result, Bob went with them, and uh, that was Hay Sheriff, so um, we lost him there, but there was no problem. We found another fantastic saxophone player called Jimmy Sloggett, 
and he was our new man, which was even better still because he was a real rock and roll player, not a jazz player. Anyway, Hey Sheriff became um, became a hit for us. We got to number fourteen in Australian in the uh, Sydney or Australian Hit Parade. So yeah, Hey Sheriff breaks into the national charts, and you guys are on your way. This must have been exciting times for you. Well, it was fantastic. Uh, we didn't didn't understand, we didn't expect anything. We just made a record and see what happens, and all of a sudden the, the world opened to us with with Lee Gordon. And Alan Heffern and his number two man, they, they made us an offer to do one of the big shows. The, the first big show was um, Tommy Sands and the Platters and um, the Sharks. That was Tommy Sands' band. And uh, Johnny Reb and the Rebels were away. Performing with these guys, you know, Tommy Sands and the Platters, they were, they were big name American stars. They were huge in America, so obviously huge in Australia. Must have been an eye-opener for you guys. Well, it was fantastic. It was really, really. And the Sydney Stadium was just mind-blowing. Now, I understand when I read about the Beatles, how they, they finished up breaking up from touring. They stopped touring about late in the 60s because they couldn't hear themselves play. The screaming was so loud from the, from the kids, they couldn't hear themselves, couldn't stay in tune. The drummer couldn't hear anything, and he was just following... McCartney's guitar bass playing along with him they couldn't hear it just could see it it was the same with us the kids were just screaming their heads off and we had no fallback in those days or couldn't hear ourselves no monitors and only one microphone for the whole band so the piano wasn't mic'd up the saxophone weren't mic'd up so God knows how it got out sound got out but it did uh, somehow <laughs> we couldn't hear it it was just electric you know just people screaming constantly well, speaking of Cole Lofton, he said uh, he thinks that even the singers Frank Sinatra and people like that they were they were probably performing through the uh, the same PA that on the Wednesday night they announced the boxes into the ring. So there was That's certainly correct. no high tech gear. That's correct. The PA were just big, big metal horns that faced out into the around the room. No, that was a, that was a, and the, the microphones were very very old fashioned things. So. So good luck. <laughs> but obviously the kids didn't care. The kids were still rocking away. They couldn't away hear us. They, they just the rock and roll. They just saw us, woo, screaming. They felt the energy and that's all they needed that's to feel. It. And that happened all over Australia. And, and Melbourne was worse. That was even louder in Melbourne. Festival Mel- Hall? Festival Hall in Melbourne, yeah. yeah. The next record you release is in June 1959 and is regarded as an all-time classic of the day. It featured a song that you co-wrote with Johnny Reb and, and the band's manager, Sid McDonough, Pathway to Paradise. How did this song come about and, and what was involved in the songwriting process? Okay, well, the song came about, uh, Reb had a, uh, an idea and he came out and sang it to me. He had no idea of how to put it together as far as the bars go and how the arrangements were going to work, <clears throat> how the, what rhythm he wanted, what um, he just was a pop song to him. So I picked it up with, um, with in mind, I, I'd heard a song called Diana and it was a sort of a, a Latin American type rhythm. Um, this is the Paul Anker song? The Paul Anker song, yeah, yeah, uh, Diana. It was 57, it came out. So, I mean, I, I didn't copy that, but I just had it in my mind and it sort of lended itself to this, hey, uh, just to Pathway to Paradise. So I came up with a, uh, with a whole verses with a Latin feel and a plunky guitar going, a sort of guitar feel. A rhythm guitar just playing it, and me playing the piano, and a drum playing a, a beguine beat. And come the, the bridge of a song, we went into a, a full on rock and roll, f- four on the floor. Bang, dong, dog, duck, dog, duck. So that's how that came about. And we went back to the. Um, Back to the um, the Latin field and back to the rock and roll field. It was two two rhythms in one record. Angel. 
If there's ever a, a classic double A side, it's this one. The track is called Rock On, and it does exactly what the title suggests. Yeah, you guys classic, rock on. That's a classic song. We sort of lost track of that because um, Pathway to Paradise was our, our big hit. So the, the Rock On sign never got played on radio, or to my knowledge anyway. But, um, and it was just basically forgotten. It, we never put it in our act. We didn't use it on stage. Really? Yeah. It only became later on we realised... It was a double-sided hit. We should have kept it for another record, but you know, I think it was wasted. Definitely, but it's still it's it holds holds well today, it's still and, there, yeah. and it's yeah, it's been refound by by the music you know music lovers of, of the day. So right. it's it certainly hasn't been lost like like a lot of songs of that era. That's, that's for sure. That's true. The energy of rock on comes blasting through the speakers like only pure rock and roll can do. The band must have been pumping during the recording of this song. Correct. Um, we're all fired up. It was the second song we did on that day. We did both songs in one day. Path of Paradise was our first, um, and that got us pumping. And uh, then we took a break for a few moments while they changed the microphones and things. We still used the same setup, same same lineup of the band. And I'd I'd written just a. In fact, I can't remember much about it at all. Um, I know it was was heavy. It was hot. We really got into it. It was dip, it was rock and roll. Yeah, it was rock and roll. Well. I saw a little girl Walking down the street
Jerry Lee was named the killer. JOK nicknamed the wild one. Johnny Reb had a media tag, the gentleman of rock. It doesn't sound all that gentlemanly grinding away on rock on. I think that happened after that song. I think he, he was looking for some sort of niche, some sort of thing he could hang his hat on. Like It wasn't a wild one, although he could rock with the best of them. But his managers sort of want to change that to to be more of a gentleman. The grey suit and the handkerchief in the top pocket, all that sort of stuff, and the black tie. Um, that was just a, a gimmick for for presentation, nothing else. It didn't work, by the way, because I didn't think it worked. Because I, I, I knew he was capable of some real good rock and roll. But uh, he, was, uh, he was subjected by his manager, I think. I think that's why it worked, to keep it calm. Kids of yesterday, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, like the kids of today, if their parents like it, they don't like it. So <laughs> true, trying to appeal to two markets at the that's one right. thing is a very hard thing to do. Fantastic. You're right. So Pathway to Paradise is a top 10 hit, peaking at number six on the charts. Yes, I did. Knowing one of your own compositions was a hit must have been a great feeling. Did you ever have a Hollywood moment hearing the song played on the radio for the first time? Or Well, yes, um, I did have a, a one of those moments, um, uh, mainly because the first uh, three or four bars of the actual recording was just me on the piano. Uh, it was me only. There wasn't anybody else in the, in the band was playing there. I just did that big long trill and a, a long glissando, and the band came in. That sort of was good. Ah, here I am. That's, that's me. <laughs> that was that. Showed everybody. That's me. Um, and hearing the hearing the record was sounded great, um, and even better that we got the, uh, the Lee Gordon interested and got a lead on release with it. That was even better still, and got the the big shows. That was all. It all stemmed from there. That was really really exciting. Well, Pathway to Paradise goes on to become the eighth biggest selling song in Australia in 1960. The next single released by Johnny Reb and the Rebels makes the charts also, Bluebirds Over the Mountain. Bluebirds Over the Mountain was very nice. It was very sort of, now Now, what happened now? This is where, where Sid McDonough came in with a gentleman of rock and roll image. That song is a real sort of a ballady song with a nice um, tremolo guitar. Yeah, it was, it was more, more of a, a, a gentleman's song, I guess. It's just fitted his image. Bluebirds over the mountain, seagulls over the sea. Bluebirds over the mountain, bring your baby back to me. With the song on the B-side, Oh Yeah. Well, I say, sugar, do you love me? I say, honey, do you really care? I say, sweetheart, may I have you? May I take you with me everywhere? I say, yeah. Yeah, I want to be your very own. I say yeah, say yeah, because I'm all yours, yours alone. 
I said, darling, do you miss me? I said, baby, do you want me to? I said, oh, 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 you love me half as much as I love you. As well as a major force in the band, you're also the producer of Johnny Reb and the Rebels, is that right? Um, yes and no. I mean, a producer in those days, they didn't have them. We never had producers. Um, the guy who worked the, 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 uh, the desk in the, in, the, in the recording studio was as big a producer as anybody. He was, just, he was twiddling the dials and getting the sounds where the producer would be in the studio in the, the control box. With the um, with the engineer, but we didn't have that in those days. So I was a producer from inside the stu- inside the recording studio, where the band was. But I couldn't hear what was going on until we heard the playback. Then I could make some suggestions how we could change it. So that was a producer's job in those days. So the answer is yes, I was a producer, but not like they are now. So you're in the studio, then once they they hit stop, you're then then listening to the playback, getting a few ideas, trying to make a few changes. So uh, learning on not learning on the run, but playing on the run, changing on, on the run. Yeah, playing on the run. Um, but keep in mind that all these parts were written, and all the musicians that I'd booked were all music readers. They could read music, so um, it came out of my brain basically the, the arrangement. So that wasn't a problem. The problem was how they played it, how the musicians themselves played it and what the feel they gave it. That was where I'd hear back in the, in the fallback, in the um, playback. So anything there, we could say, no, we mean more power here or less power here or change the feel, change the tone a bit here and change that and change that. So that was basically the producer's job in those days, which I did. Okay, yes. So you guys were the uh, accredited as being the, uh, the first Australian act signed to lead on label, the correct. lead on label. Yeah, correct. And and as you said before, that we came with that was the League Orton big shows. And you formed on, on a, quite a number of big shows. Who were some of the big overseas acts that made a real impression on you? Okay. Um, <clears throat> Everly Brothers. Now, there's another trick here. Um, Everly Brothers didn't have a band. I'm trying to think who else was on the show with them. But none of them had a, a band. So uh, Lee Gordon, in his wisdom, uh, cherry-picked musicians from the uh, Joy Boys, the DJs, the Rebels, and uh, the RJs, which is Dickie Richards' band. He cherry-picked musicians to make a, a, a pit band. And, these, and that band, I was, I was given the piano chair. Tony, Tony um, drummer from the Rebels, was given the drum chair. Tony Hopkins, um, the two saxophone players from the DJs, Johnny Greenland and, and um, um, Bob Bertels. Guitar was um, uh, from the uh, Cold Joy, uh, Dave Bridge. So there's a few other people involved. So that was the, the whole band. And unfortunately, oh, fortunately, let me rephrase that, a man was chosen to, to conduct. Now, this guy was chosen was from the early days of music, and he was a, a jazz player and had no interest or no ability to know about rock and roll. He was, you know, jazz musicians and rock and roll didn't mix. It was like oil and water. Chalk and cheese, yeah. Right, right, and chalk and cheese. So he was at the, at the forefront of counting us in, standing up with a, with a baton, like, like <laughs> conducting a rock and roll band, like <laughs> ridiculous. But he counted one, two, three, four, and every count time he counted the tempo for the Every Brothers, it was wrong. It was either too fast or too slow. And the Everly Brothers were on stage behind us with acoustic guitars. So they weren't mic'd up at all. 
just acoustic guitars. Now, instead of singing their, their, their songs like they knew them, they were um, bird dog, bird dog, dog, instead of hey, bird dog, get away from, it was just all wrong. So they had to stop us all the time. So it was embarrassing. So finally, I think after about two or three shows, he got the tempos right, I think. I knew. <laughs> And how would Lee Gordon have taken this? He wouldn't have been too happy? I don't know if he was there or not. He'd okay, probably, yep. probably under a rock somewhere. Yep. <laughs> Lee Gordon was in those days. Well, Al Heffernan was, was really running the show mainly under Lee's sort of tutelage, I suppose. Yeah, well, Alan Alan, Alan was. Alan, um, um, what's his name again? Heffernan. Alan, Alan Heffernan, that's yep. right. Sorry, sorry Alan. Uh, he was basically running the show. Because Lee was off with a bird some, somewhere. Well, yeah, apparently the story goes Lee would come up with the idea and as soon as the idea was uh, starting to go into fruition, he'd lose interest and give it to Alan and Max Moore. That's right. Then the, uh, the rest of the, he'd come up with another idea and, yeah, yeah. and so on. So we've, without that crew, there would, there would be no big shows or, or, or whatnot, That's but true. yeah, it's. And also Alan Heffernan, Alan Heffernan's wife, Val, she was involved in it too. She was the, um, the office lady it was, um, she did all the monies and all the, the stuff. So she was part of it. And Alan used to talk to her and she's talked to him and, and they, they found out of quite a few shows that, that uh, Lee had booked were, were dogs. Right, yes. Didn't work at all. I mean, even the, the last one that, that we worked on was the Johnny Ray show, and that was his fifth time that they'd brought him to Australia. And by that time, he was way past it. And he put a show together that was, was totally didn't, didn't, didn't appeal to anybody. Even though O'Keefe and, and Reb were on the show, he had the Horidaki Quintet, which, what's that about, you know? And, and Johnny Ray, and a lady called Shirley Simmons, who was a jazz singer, and Candy and Mandy. Right, okay, yes. So that's a weird a weird lineup. Yep. Who's gonna to come to that? So nobody came. So yeah, he he's he was well known for having some some massive shows, some some hits that changed rock and roll in Australia. But as you said, he he, he proved that he was uh he was he was human because he, he had, had a fair few failures, but uh every time he had a failure he bounced back and he did. He and did. you could never Never doubt that he tried, and he and he, he but yeah, he, he certainly put on a few. Well, he shockers. made it, didn't he? He actually made rock and roll in, in Australia. Yeah, definitely, you definitely. Could put all, go all back to him, and he who was nineteen fifty six, fifty seven. He's bringing out rock and roll, American rock and roll acts, as well as um, Louis Armstrong and Frank Sinatra. Uh, did you bring Bob Hope out? I think. Bring, yeah, bought Bob he, Hope. Yeah, yep. Bob, yeah. So he was doing all that, and it wasn't rock and roll, but he, but he had he had the audience. So when rock and roll hit, he changed that from the, the Sinatras and the Bob Hopes into the, you know, the rock and roll people and brought them out. Bill Haley, he brought Bill Haley out. Yeah, exactly. And that was, yeah. you know, that was a show that uh, Johnny O'Keefe got his start with because uh, Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps, the Blue Caps couldn't arrive in Australia. So That's all of right. a sudden the DJs yeah. got, got, they, they uh, got, the gig. got the gig. and but they only had the gig for one, for one job. That's all. That was the story because the band was stuck in Hawaii. They were coming, but they got stuck. They lost their lost their, their connection something and couldn't make the first show. So Lee Gordon got um, Johnny O'Keefe, who was – Johnny O'Keefe was bugging Lee Gordon for, for months and months about all this. So he finally said, oh, come, come, have a go, get rid of you. So he got him on the show with a DJ. He said, just one show. But what happened? He killed them. He blew the, blew the damn audience away. So Lee Gordon kept him on. Story, true story, that one. The rest is history, as it they is, say. Yeah, it is. You guys are, are riding high on the charts, Johnny Reb and the Rebels, and Johnny Reb decides to go solo. That virtually means the ends of the Rebels. Does, was that a disappointing time for you guys? Well, it was more disappointing. I was very, very angry about all that. Um, I was um, Reb's number one man and Stitch's number one man, and I was doing all the, the, the work necessary for, to keep the band together and make sure they're there. And, and he was going to go to the States. There was an American trip 
that he and Sid had decided to to make. And by the way, they they, they paid for it on the royalties of Hay of uh, Barfo to Paradise, which I, I never saw any royalties of. But they they paid for that, and I was going to go with them. And the three of us going to go to the states and and be big stars. That was the whole plan. That was in um, 1960 sometime, and it never happened because um, the last minute I didn't have a. Uh, a, a visa or anything or anything and I couldn't understand why uh, and he said well what we'll do John we'll, we'll, we'll leave you here you look after the band and as soon as we get established we'll call, for, call you come on over well that was in 1960 and I haven't had that call yet <laughs> still waiting I, I won't get it now because <laughs> they're both gone you know, so but that was a bit not disappointing it was a, I was angry about that after a while after I realised I was, I was being used um, but um, I got over it it's, it's part of it's the past so move on yep well, yeah. you, you can't live in the past, can you? And, and they, they didn't do any good anyway. And yeah, Johnny's Johnny Reb's solo career was nothing like his career with the Rebels. He did, he never had a, a, a national hit after that. So, you know, in hindsight, I'm sure he probably would have wished he kept the Rebels together and you well, kept doing what you were doing. Well, you understand that in in that time, 1960, late 60, 61, all the bands folded. The Cold Joy, well, the Cold Joy didn't fold the band. Um, the DJs finished up. The RJs finished up, the Devils were gone, and the Rebels were gone. Because what happened with Bandstand, for one, they had their own big orchestra now. They, they realised that the, 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 the rock and roll bands that, that we were, were, were wasn't big enough sound-wise to fill the, the screen. So they, 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 they got a big band with four trumpets and all the stuff to fill up, make the sound more big to the, for the people to listen to. Um, and the, the rock and roll bands, as they were, they were being sort of not booked because Coldwell was going on with the with the orchestra, and so was O'Keefe, and so was Rebbe. They didn't need us, so we sort of all faded into the, into, into oblivion. So I think Coldwell was okay because he changed his band members around a bit, and they went touring, country touring, and they did that for a long while. But the other bands, they all folded, and even even the DJs with O'Keefe, he um. He, he did without them after he got his uh, Sing, Sing, Sing show and the Johnny O'Keefe show that was all the, the big band was on. So you landed on your feet, though, as the musical director of Six O'Clock Rock and also Bandstand. So h- how did you get these jobs? Well, not so much uh, Six O'Clock Rock. I wasn't the MD for Six O'Clock Rock. What Six O'Clock Rock was, we only filled in for O'Keefe. O'Keefe was um, off in New Zealand for a while and he went to the States with his, his boomerang kid uh, debacle. And while he was away, uh, we got the job as a fill-in for him. And Reb was the compere and lead singer of the, the thing. And we used to play for all the acts as well. That was that one. I was MD for my band, but I wasn't MD for, for the show. You know what I mean? Because I had another band as well, a jazz band. Um, but I was MD for, for that and also bandstand. So I was totally the MD for bandstand for the first six months. And then um, they started getting other bands in as well, to make it a bit more... Because all the, all, the, all the guys had their own bands, like Warren Williams had his own band, um, Lucky Star had his own band, uh, Devlin had his own band then, so they gave them a go as well. So with, with Bandstand, um, working with Brian Henderson, what was Brian like to work with? Brian, very cool, man. He was uh, he, he, very um, quiet. He wasn't very talkative. We didn't have any any conversations with him as so. We we only had conversations with the the floor manager, and uh, it was produced by a guy called Warwick Freeman in those early days, and that's who we worked with. And he was up in the in the bio box, well, yes, you know, putting cameras, all that stuff, producing it there. But we only just talked to the floor manager. That's all. Put us into place and his counters in, I think. 
But Brian was um, Brian was just very cool. Well, what can you say about it? you? All remember him. He was very, very good on stage. Very good on TV. Very good appearance, and he he came over great. But he wasn't a, an outrageous guy like O'Keefe. <laughs> that was right. a difference. <laughs> yes, the mild one to the wild That's one. That's right. Yeah. And Johnny Reb and the Rebels, you guys were regulars on, on TV on the day, 6 o'clock rock, rumpus room, tea time. Must have been great cutting your teeth in these TV studios. Yeah, it was great. Um, they, were, they were bedlam. The whole the whole was a mess, uh, let me explain to you. On the day of the actual TV show, the Saturdays, or Bandstand, let me talk about Bandstand. Bandstand was, had a, um, a, a, a get-together at their, at their studios about four, 3 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Where we would go through the um, the songs with the guest artists we were, we were backing. That lasted for about three or four months. Then they said, "Oh, this is no good." They took us in there Thursday nights and they started to record the backings, so they weren't live to air anymore. We had to mime them. But the first four four up to six months, it was all live, and I guess they figured that that maybe there were some wrong notes played or some <laughs> some bum notes with the singers. So oh, this is no good. We better record it all. So that was that. Then six o'clock rock. That was absolutely outrageous. Ten o'clock in the morning, Saturday morning, we'd all assemble at a little church hall in Darlinghurst. The the um, singers would bring their records, no no music, nothing written, just a record. And we had to had a record player on the piano. And we'd play it and and we'd quickly write down the chords and uh, the, the feel and all that stuff and how long it was and as best you can. And we'd play it and they'd sing it. That was it. And they'd all do that, maybe about six or seven, eight of them. We'd do that, do that. We'd took a couple of hours. Um, and the, the backup, the, the Deltones and the other backing groups, they would have to learn their bits as well. Then we'd have lunch and we'd go to the studios at Gore Hill and we'd go and do another rehearsal with cameras. And then we'd go to, go to air, all live. Wow, woo! <laughs> I still got my hair. I don't know how. Didn't tear it out. But uh, it was really, really um, nervous, nervous, nerve-wracking. It was go to air live and you've only had a few hours' practice on everybody's song, maybe only one through it the first time. After you wrote, wrote the chords down and the, and the rhythm, you only have one go with them. And they had to get it right as well. But they, they would have to practice it, get in the right key for them, and then go on to the, the studio and after lunch have a camera rehearsal, a lighting rehearsal, and a, a run-through with them as well, all at once, then to air. <laughs> Hang on. So these performers today have no idea what you guys oh, are flying by the city of your pants. Unreal, yeah, unreal. City of your pants stuff. And we, and we were pretty lucky because um, we are all good musicians out in the band. There was no guys who were, uh, not, couldn't play. All could play their, play their acts. They all could read music, and, although we didn't need the music to read in those days, but they could do it. So there was Calm Yourself Down. Highway to Love is one of the great Johnny Reb and Rebels singles. Switch to here and I'm on, on the highway of love. 
promised land I know I'm here to dream of paradise Cause I see heaven in my baby's eyes And I'm on, on the highway, highway of love Highway to Love breaks into the top 10, also reaching number 8 on the charts. The B-side on this this track is It Might Have Been. The saddest words of Tom or Penn Are these four words It might have been Again, you guys did really well in the charts at that stage. Yeah, that was good, wasn't it? That was was that on an EP? I think it was. Uh, yeah, there was an EP. There was also a, a single release, but oh, also okay. an I EP as well. It was off an EP. It was a single release. Um, that Highway of Love, that was something that came out of my head. Um, that was a big band arrangement, although it wasn't a big band. It was only a small band. It was the Rebels, a five, six-piece. But the, um, the phrasing was taken from... The old days of the the big bands, where the the, the, the upbeat was important, but to that sort of that rock, not rock feel, but a, a jazz feel, sort of a Glenn Miller type. Yeah, well, you can you can you can say that. Yeah, but yeah, it was an experiment in my head, although it, and it came off. So really happy with it, and the the, the people they took it and made it number six. So another one, <laughs> number one for that one, <laughs> exactly. And then when we're talking about charts in those days and, and chart positions, it's 
there was a myriad of charts and it was not like today where the arias are working out what what singles each week moved around so for australian songs to even make the charts was was a big deal sort of thing so you can almost put them down to almost number one hits in 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 certain areas because if you guys played in you know toured through dubbo the single was big in dubbo for that Mm. time there was no internet there was tv and and radio was was a bit sketchy and if if you if you look at the um the book by um, jim barnes where they list all the all the hit parade right through from 1956 in 57 there was only one australian artist to get into the top 10 which is slim dusty okay that was public Uh, had four releases in that year never got near the top 10 um 58 there was about oh a good maybe 10 or 12 Australian acts got on the charts. Um, Rebby, of course. Uh, Keith had, uh, and Cold Joy. Cold Joy had a num- number one hit with um, Bye Bye Baby. That was the first Australian rock and roll hit, they say, but it wasn't a rock and roll song. Yes. It was a country song. Yep. Like Slim Dusty. Well, that wasn't a Slim Dusty style. It was a, a, a sort of a, a country pop song. So it wasn't rock and roll. So <clears throat> with Hey Sheriff, it was the highest striking um, rock and roll song in, in Australian history. even We even beat O'Keefe with that because O'Keefe had about four or five in that year, um, but they, they weren't. Um, they didn't get any higher than, than Path to Paradise. So we, we hold the record there, the first rock and roll song on Australian hip parade, Hey Hey Sheriff. Again, an- another great tag for you guys to claim. Yeah, yeah. So Johnny Reb and the Rebels were creative in the studios when recording. Despite being faced with draconian and outdated recording equipment and, and methods, you guys still tried to push the boundaries of all the tricks with such of echoes and, and, and whatnot. A good example of this is a song, All For The Love Of A Girl. tinkling away on the piano sort of in a really deep mix do you remember having an experimental approach to this song or is that just the way that it came out i remember the doing the song that was our album some swing some sweet some swing i had to write the whole 12 songs in about two or three weeks they gave me to do it so it was like a bit of a sausage machine that one churning them out so, I mean, I, I came up with all the ideas I could. Uh, I guess in, in retrospect, I might have done a better job, had more time or more experience because I was only a kid myself in those days. How old yeah. would you have been, John? Oh, let me think. What year are we talking about? We're talking about 50, 58. Uh, now we're into 60 now. So. Uh, 60, all right. Well, I was 21. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. So I still have, wasn't experienced all that much with, with, with uh, writing, but I was doing what I could. And I think things come out all right. I'm, I, I'm, I can't complain. Well, it holds true today, so... Yeah, that's true. In all, the band releases five singles on Lead On, as well as three EPs, Highway of Love, Hit It For Six in 1960, and Come On, Let's Go...
Johnny and the Rebel and the Rebels also, as you said, released uh, a full-length album, Some Swing, Some Sweet. Full-length albums back in the day were, were a hard sell because the kids didn't have the money to buy the albums. They had the money to buy singles or EPs. So for for a band to actually do a full-length album showed the uh, the level of success that you guys were at. I think so. I think that's true. Um, I, I don't know about the sales of that. As I said, as, as I said before, I wasn't involved in that side of the business. I was looking after the band and making it work. Um, I know it was a it was a big one doing twelve songs in that certain time because in those days you didn't have an, an, an time to do it. You had to do it quickly. Every three hours you had to do two songs at least, sometimes three in three hour sessions, and that includes mixing as well. So in a period of um, I think two weeks, we got in there and did it. Um, yeah, I mean, it probably is. Was that Lone Ranger going to get married? Is that in there? Uh, yeah, that's on the, the album. That's on the album? Yep. That's a terrible mix. Yes. I don't know what I'm, there's no bass. The bass has disappeared off the whole track. I don't know what happened there. Here is Johnny Reb and the Rebels doing a cover version of Chuck Berry's Maybelline. This song was released in 1960 on the Johnny Reb Hits for Six EP. Oh Maybelline, what can't you be too? Oh Maybelline, what can't you be too? Yeah, you better start back and doing the things you used to do. Well, I was motivating over the hill I saw Maybelline in the the bill A Cadillac going on an open road I get an outrun by a VA4 Cadillac doing about 95 Bumper to bumper on side to side Maybelline, what can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, what can't you be true? Yeah, you better start back at doing the things you used to do Well, Cadillac moved to 
Together was on the flip side of the Lansom Road single. Just to be with you 
here as part of a radio interview with Johnny Reb, recorded in the 1980s. As far as my starting off in the business is concerned, I, I uh, was requested by a friend of mine at the time, Sid McDonough, who is now my manager and, or more recent, my business partner over the last few years, more so than manager. I started off, he asked me to do a, a charity performance thing over at uh, Riverwood at a, at a hall over there, which he was organising. And uh, I was a mad country freak at that time and enjoyed country music, country and western music and things. I uh, said, yeah, sure, I'll do the show and things like that. And I wasn't really long out of school at the time when, when it all sort of happened. And uh, I did the show and uh, it went over quite well with the audience. And uh, after the show was over, we sort of sat around had some coffee and things like that and Sid said do you think you might like to do this business seriously I said well what business there's no business in the country really you know as far as entertainment was concerned I mean you had a few jazz concerts around the place and things like that but in general there was there was absolutely no pop industry I mean all we were getting was uh, stuff from overseas like Presley stuff and the Bill Haley stuff coming into the country as far as local talent was concerned it was was just nil and void and uh said, well, you know, I mean, uh, we can create a business. There's, there's money there to be to be earned. There's, there's something we can get started and, and make something good out of it. And at the time, O'Keefe was, had been around, but he was sort of doing a, a lot of imitation things on jazz concerts of Johnny Ray and all of those sort of things. And uh, then John started recording uh, rock music and getting into the, the rock music field. And uh, so we said, yeah, okay, well, let's give it a fly and see how it goes from there. And uh, that's basically how I started. I, from there, I uh, we got ourselves organised. I think we had about 40, 40 pound between us at the time, and we thought, well, if we're going to start, there's not much to start on, and we spent half of that on getting photographs done and things like that. And uh, I gave my job away because we thought, well, it's going to be enormously hard to try and do two things, like do a day job and, and try and break into a, uh, another business as well. And uh, Sid gave his job away, I gave my job away, and we just sort of started out to do this thing. And we had a few friends around the place. I used to go to a few dances and things like that before I came into the business, and uh, I knew a few of the musician guys around the place. And uh, one friend of mine, particularly Johnny Charters, which I'd known for a while, and... Uh, I said to John, John was piano player, and I said to John, you know, we're going to break into this business. Would you like to be with us and form a group? And uh, he was quite enthusiastic about it. Said, sure, you know, this is great, you know. And uh, so we sort of, between John and myself, we organised up a bunch of guys and we put five-piece band together. Uh, then came the, the thing of finding a name for the band. At that time, there was a lot of in sort of names, and uh, we settled on Johnny Reb and the Rebels, which was quite a catchy thing and, and an in thing at the time. From there, um, we started doing a few sort of minor lunchtime concerts and things like that, and uh, we thought, well, the record side of it's the next side of it. We did a demo thing um, at the old TUE studios, which we hawked around to get a record contract, actually. Uh, a thing called Bip Bop Bip and My Special Angel, and if you, anyone ever gets onto a copy of that, it's worth fortune, because <laughs> there was only 20 pressings rele uh, uh, pressed of it. Uh, my first contract was with EMI, uh, and we did a cover version of the Chuck Berry thing, Johnny Be Good, and another thing called Rebel Rock, which kind of flunked on its ear a bit, but that's worth a lot of money today, too. <laughs> If someone can get onto it in good condition. Here's another couple of tunes by Johnny Reb and his Rebels. First up is Lonesome Whistle. I was walking down the track, all I got is on my back. Wishing that I never strayed from home. Got no fare for the train that would take me back. Where my sweet Mary Lou sits alone And I hate to hear that lonesome 
since the day I went away and the tears I had to pay. Why, why did I decide to roam? Traveled up, traveled down, loved a girl in every town, but I left my poor heart sitting home. And I hate to hear that lonesome whistle blow, whistle blow, whistle blow. Every night I reminisce, longing for her tender kiss. In this crowded world, I'm all alone. To forget her, I try, but I love until I die. Oh, I must find a way to get home. And I hate to hear that lonesome whistle blow, whistle blow, How will it end?
once the Johnny Reb and the Rebels had, had split, during the uh, Vietnam War era, you toured Asia with a 10-piece all-Australian show band. How, how were you received in the Far East? Ah, that was amazing. Okay, let me think. Um, I was working in a place called the Associated Motor Club in George Street, Sydney, from 64 to 67. Digger Ravel was occasionally the, the guest artist, him and his guitar-playing um, MD, Ron Kitchen. And uh, about late 67, he came to me and he said, John, I've been offered um, a tour of Vietnam. I said, yeah, right, where's that? I had no idea of Vietnam, what's going on there, because I was in, in, embroiled, in, embroiled in, the, in the motor club six nights a week playing. My first gig at playing Hammond organ, the B3 Hammond organ. I still have it in my room here. So that I bought that for that, and that was fantastic. I love that. Is that the same instrument? That's the same instrument. Wow. There it is. Um, and Digger Ravel said, he's, you know, he, uh, it's, over. it's a war. I said, isn't there a war going on there? He said, yeah, but we're safe, mate. We're, no worries. I said, oh, okay. He said, we want a 10-piece band at some book by a guy called Loyal Richardson, who was a DJ at the time and a promoter, and he wants us to go to Vietnam for six months, contract. He wanted um, five girls and five guys. So, huh, okay, so here I go again. I'm trying to find uh, a band and find five girls. So that was that was good. We went over there, and um, it wasn't a lot of money, but it was all right. Um, and then we we got into into Saigon, flew into Saigon via um, Singapore, and um, there was no. We didn't have a visa. Uh, nobody thought to. Uh, we left, got out of Sydney, all right, without a visa. But we got to Vietnam, said, "Where your visa?" So we, what, what do you mean visa? We're here. So there's nobody there to meet us. And we sat in the in the airport for about two or three hours while they sorted all this stuff out. And then um, the agents finally realised we're, we're, we're there and come and got us. So we worked for this agents called the Lear Brothers. Now, I don't know if you remember a lady called um, Wilma Reading. Wilma Reading is a fabulous Thursday Island girl, singer. She's beautiful. And she's been all around, around the world singing. Uh, she sang with the um, the Count Basie big band on the stage. She was on the sang with the um, the Russian Philharmonic Orchestra. She's just such a wonderful, great singer. And she was over there with her husband uh, Ray Lear, who was part of the band called or part of the agents called the Lear Brothers. And um, they booked us six, eight months straight, and we were doing like twenty one shows a week, only one hour shows, and we had four 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 dancing girls and a girl singer, um, a three piece band with Digger and a comedian. Um, can't think of his name at the moment. Uh, and then we did the um, the six months, and our contract was up. But uh, they still want us. They want to keep us there. So they 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 lost our they lost our our passports. Well, actually, they didn't lose. They took they took our passports off us when we first arrived, so that they'd be safe. They kept them in a safe place. But then they said, "Oh, we can't find them." <laughs> so we stayed another two months. We finally went to court and all that sort of stuff to try and get out. Anyway, we got out. And we did um, went to the Far East, and we did all the, around the American bases in in um, in Korea, in Japan, and Okinawa, and Taipei, and Bangkok, and did some of the uh, the other the other shows as well, the, the civilian shows. Then we went back to Vietnam and went to another agency, and we went back went back nine times into Vietnam. So over five years, we toured right around the Far East. So you would have seen some some crazy sights over there. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's no, it's it's, it's not 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 to be thought about. It's just we we're young kids. Well, the girls, some of the girls are 17, 18 years of age, and they were just just I awestruck at what's going on around us. So we we stuck to it and we did it. It was we were you know, doing three shows every night. Starting at six o'clock in the evening till eleven o'clock at night, and three one-hour shows, and pack up and go to the next one and do the show and pack up and do another one. 
The life of a rock and roller. Yeah, 21 shows a week. I'm not on it wins. So you're, you're known as a multi-instrumentalist. Yep. A vocalist. You play piano, mm-hmm. keyboard, saxophone, clarinet, trumpet, organ, cornet, trombone, electric bass, and frugal horn. Yep. One thing springs to mind, John. What's a frugal horn and how often is it used? <laughs> A flugelhorn, okay, it's it's a classical instrument. It's like a trumpet in shape, although it's much much deeper and has a, a more mellow sound. It's halfway between a, a shrill trumpet sound and a French horn, and it's uh, it's very mellow. Of all the instruments that you play and you've mastered, there's two that aren't on there that I can see: guitar and drums. Surely you could have mastered these two as well. Well, I did drums. <clears throat> I played drums with a um, a band called the Fifties. I was in for six, seven years, and we got five Mo Awards in a row. Um, was was a was a band that everybody played everything. It was one of the same, one of those strange bands that everybody in the band could play other instruments. And the, the the drummer was a singer, so he used to come out the front and sing, and I used to play the drums. So I, I never I was never taught drums, but I, being a musician and being taught classical music right from day one, when I was seven years of age, I did seven years of classical training. Um, I knew about music and how, how things worked, and so I picked up my things like trumpets and trombones, even though I didn't have any lessons on both of those instruments. But I could pick them up easy and taught myself from learning the piano. I learned the piano. I learned saxophone for a while. I played in the uh, East East Sydney. Police Boys Club band, play clarinet with Alto with him. And Neville Thomas was a teacher that taught me uh, saxophone. So I, I learned some things and taught myself other things. Now, the guitar, I don't know. I didn't have any any um, any need to play guitar. We had two guitar players in, the, in that band when I was picking up things uh, who were good. Um, although I did pick up guitar a few times and played, played some chords, but I couldn't play it. I couldn't play lead. I could play rhythm but i've lost it now because all my fingers have gone soft so i can't play it anymore so i gave up next (laughs) so another successful part of your career was a move to the usa yep you formed a band called the australians how long did you stay in america for three years we um we were picked up by a guy who was um a major in the american american marines that booked our show in vietnam in da nang in um was 1972 i think it was 72 just as we're all coming out of Vietnam. And he rang me at, at home. I was living in Balmain when I got home. And I picked up the phone and he said, um, G'day, John, this is Major Jack Haynes and so-and-so and so-and-so. I'd like you to want to come to the States and do a six-month contract. I said, yeah, call me back when you're sober. I thought it was a mate of mine having me on, you know, but it was for sure. He rang back and he um, he took us over there. We didn't, we didn't take any girls with us because that was the um, the show we had in the last show we saw. Um we just went with five guys. So four he, guys. he'd seen you guys in in Vietnam or in in Asia. He's, yes, he right? booked yes. us. He, yep. he, had, he had his own club over there, and he booked us. And he liked what he saw and thought. And he had. A, I found he had an Australian wife that might have helped a bit. How to find us? So he found us, and um, we went to the states. And um, we had we had to go and get photographs taken with koala bears and kangaroos, all that sort of stuff, because um, we had to get an H two visa, which is a visa given to specialist people like. Volkswagen mechanics who they didn't have in the states, so they didn't have a band that uh, that that, <laughs> that played kangaroo music. So, <laughs> anyway, that was the way we got in a visa H two visa. Um, we were very disappointed after the first week. We had a two weeks two weeks contract in a place called the Caboose in Orlando, Florida, as our first gig for six nights a week. 
uh, five nights, sorry, was um, Tuesday through Saturday night. And after our first week of doing a two-week contract, we got sacked. And said, well, hang on. Oh, we didn't know that the manager told us they'd sacked us. And said, what's what's going on, guys? How, what you, what you do? We said, what do you mean what we do? We just played our stuff. You know? I said, well, you didn't play what they wanted. I said, well, what do they want? We, we play a bit of Neil Diamond, a bit of country music, some rock and roll, some pop music, and a bit of disco. And said, no, 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 no. All these clubs they're working in in America, they all specialise. You're working in a top 40 club. I said, oh, nobody told us that. <laughs> We're like, wow, what's going on? Now, we, they've got jazz clubs, they've got country clubs, they've got the, every club specialises in their music. So the people who like that music go to that club. So we're playing everything. Well, so anyway, they said, well, what we'll do, we'll offer uh, a new deal to them the second week for half your fee if you learn to play top uh, top 40 music. I say, oh, okay. And being in the 70s, it wasn't as hard as it might have been because it was all disco and just four on the floor, thump, 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 so easy for the drummer and the bass player, we just had to learn the songs, which we did. We had to find um, about 40, 50 songs to learn you know, on Sunday, Monday, and open on Tuesday. So we had two and a half days to so awake most of the night as well. So we learned it. So we did um, the, 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 the gig the second week, only half the money, but now we had a new thing. We're now a top 40 band. So we went and bought some, some jumpsuits with a big frill, the big bottoms and the big high shoes and I had an afro haircut and all this sort of stuff we had a lot done so we played the part and after about um, two or three weeks I said to Digger Digger um, I'm thinking of what we might have oh, to so do I said Digger Ravel was in this band oh, as yeah, well yeah Digger yes. Ravel sorry yep. Digger Ravel was in the band he was the, the front my, front guy what we'll have to do I think I have to change the name of the band no, nobody knows Digger Ravel in this place and, and uh, we won't get very far unless we have a hit record which it didn't at the stage let's change the name of the band and what do we think so I come up with the idea let's call ourselves the Australians from there on we just packed the places they all want to come and hear us and hear, and hear us talk Ah, I'd like you. Can let me hear you talk. I say, G'day, mate. How are you? <laughs> they loved us. So we, we packed the places from there on. We did three years. Um, the end came when our manager, Jack, uh, was promoted in the Marine Corps to a colonel, from a major to a colonel, and he was a, a, a jet plane f- pilot as well. So his, his workload became so that we couldn't sort of stay on much longer with him, and he, he sold us to another agent who bombed. So we came home. And when you came home, this is the 1980s now, you are, you joined the Deltones. Yep. Um, well, actually, 77, we came home. After going on 74, 74, 77, we did America. Uh, and about 78, um, Digger had the bright idea of, well, actually, what the story was, we're driving up to Queensland on numerous occasions, doing gigs up there with Digger. And Pee Wee and Brian Perkins were living halfway up the coast. They'd retired from music. And they were farming. So we used to call in and say hello, all that sort of stuff. And um, we said, why don't you guys get back on the road? He said, oh, no, 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 we've been there, done that. So every time we went, we, we, we said to them, let's go back on the road. So they finally, well, not Pee-wee did, finally decided that they'd give it a go. So that's what happened. We, we formed a, a mega show with Digger Ravel and the Ravels. We, we went back to the Digger Ravel name. Digger, we called it Digger Ravel, Digger Ravel Review, we called it, and the Deltones. So we did the first half and the Deltones did the second half. Well... 
What happened? Killed them. Packed the rooms. People couldn't get enough. Like, you know, Deltas, they screamed. Because Dick Revell was, and the and the Review, we're very experienced by now. We've been playing together for three years straight. And also from Vietnam, so we've been playing a lot together. So our show was really polished. And when you think about it, Deltas, Dick Revell, rock and roll royalty in yeah, Australia. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it just went on and on. It was just, and eventually after about, there were six months. Oh, that's right. Um, Deltones had their own band. They were the band from the RJs with Leon Isaacson and and, and um, uh, John Hayton. John Hayton, yeah, yep. yeah, um, Hayton. And um, he was a bass player, um, Mr. Muckles, we call him, um, Mike Lawler. So that was their band and our band. So we had two bands and two shows. So Pee Wee thought to himself, uh, why don't we just have one band? So he put an offer to us, but we would like to uh, back him, or back the Deltones. So that's where we started that, and they paid us, we got more money, of course. And the other band, they let them go because there's more too many people on the road trying to get accommodation. It's costing a fortune. So we started with that, and then after a while, um, I got an offer from Pee Wee to join the Deltones and, and get, he's going to leave Digger because he could see a, a much better idea for himself by being the Deltones. He didn't need Digger. So Digger went country, I went with the Deltones. And that as a, as a vocalist? No, as a, as the MD. Okay, yes. Yep. First of all. So after about a year... Of the Deltoses coming up to 1982, 81, I think it was. Uh, he offered me the job as singer because uh, a guy called Brian Perkins, who was his long long life partner, uh, they had a falling out and um, he left. So they needed a baritone singer, and that was perfect for me. I was a baritone, and, and I knew the show backwards, so I went and became the, the baritone singer of the Deltones. So that was it till about 1984, 85. Um, long story, but I've been married at that stage. Three times, mainly because I was on the road most of my life since 1967 with Vietnam and the States, then all over the country doing shows. Um, how do you keep a relationship together? So I lost both my wives through that situation. The third wife was teetering on the edge of, of leaving too. So I said, well, I can't keep going like this. I better give up something. So I, I said to the Delta, I'm, I'm going to leave. Simple, simple as that. Keep my marriage, for God's sake. You know, I can't keep going through life with <laughs> marrying different people. It's not going to happen. So then I, I got a, uh, an offer to join a, a band called the 50s. And that's the, uh, the band that you won the Mo Awards with, is yes, that correct? Yes. yes. It was a, a band. Um, now, a, a guy who worked with the Delta has got a guy called Bob Cook, who I got him a gig in there, playing bass and playing high, singing high. Um, he'd left the delis and he'd form, formed the band with, not formed the band, but he got the, the, the gig with a guy called Ross Rollins, who was a manager, an artist manager at the Hornsby RSL Club. And the band was good, um, wild band, really wild. Um, and I'd left the Deltones and I got an offer to, to join that band. Would I go up and, and play piano for them? I said, okay, I'll have a look at it. So I, I did. And then Ross Rollins said to me, he said, man, um, I want you to knock the band into shape because uh, they're pretty wild and, and I found the drummer was really racing too much and we, we'd start one tempo and finish twice as fast. Um, so it needed a bit of, bit, of, bit of conjuring and fixing it up. So he gave me the bit about and making it into a show band. So that's how it all started, the, the 50s. So we made it into a show. I, got, I didn't want to take the energy away from the band because they were energetic as hell. So I just had to change things around a bit and make some new medleys and new songs and make it more show busy rather than, than just a band. So that happened and we won five male awards in a row we, as, a, as, as the, um, what they call it, the um, show band. No, was it was a show band. I'm trying to think what the award name was. But anyway, we won it five years in a row, which is good for me. Yeah, definitely. I, I produce that. <laughs> the production stuff, here. Yeah. Fast forward to today. Mm-hmm. You're still rocking, John. 
They can't get you away from well, it. Well, yeah, I guess so. Um, after the fifties, well, after the fifties, I went into a theatre restaurant at Penrith called Stepping Out and produced their show for about. Oh, I was there for eight years. Every year we'd do a brand new show. The guy was clever because he he he, he took um, um, girls' wedding um, sort of functions, but wouldn't take the, the Bucks nights, which because course ruckus in the place so he didn't want to do that so he just caught the, the girls nights out and he was very successful and i had um a four or five no seven piece show there and i produced that for the whole the whole uh, six eight how long eight nine almost ten years i was there so more experience and then uh, all the time i was there i had this band called twin set which is myself and a girl singer we're just doing gigs on the side and, and um i finished up at the um the penrith theater restaurant which finally went went broke and um, just concentrated on Twinset. And I'm still doing it today. Not today. I've got another gig on this Sunday at Ramwick Bowling Club. I did two gigs last week and three the week before. So I'm still out there. It's not rock and roll, but it's, it's pop music. I'm doing pop music It's for the clubs. At my age, what else do you do? Well, you're still playing. <laughs> That's all you can ask for. That's right. Go on there, Sheldon. No worries. Thank you very much for your time, John. And it's great to speak with you. Thanks, Sheldon. And all the best, mate. Look after yourself. Here is an example of John at work. On this medley of popular tunes, John is doing everything from vocals, backing vocals, playing all the instruments. John truly is a one-man band. Come on, everybody. Come on, everybody. Sugar, it was a party in the county jail. Prison man was there when they began. 
If you enjoyed the episode, please click subscribe. And if you could leave a review or rating at iTunes, that would be unreal. If you have any guest requests or suggestions, you can email me at mycoast2 at bigpond.com. That's M-Y-C-O-A-S-T, the number two, at bigpond.com. Or like our Facebook page at All Australian Music Stories. I'd like to thank you again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. And until next time, hail, hail, Australian rock and roll. Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions. Written, produced and presented by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kid. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, Hit it, girl! I know